This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com and by University of North Carolina Press, which has loads of great titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Homeownership by Kienga Yamada-Taylor, a frequent guest right here on The Dig. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, a wave of urban uprisings pushed politicians to bring about an end to the practice of redlining. Reasoning that the turbulence could be calmed by turning black city dwellers into homeowners, they passed the Housing and Urban Development Act of 1968 and set about establishing policies to induce mortgage lenders in the real estate industry to treat black homebuyers equally. What ensued was a bonanza of racist corruption at the expense of black homebuyers. The racist exclusion of redlining had been transmuted into a new phenomenon of predatory inclusion. Race for Profit uncovers how exploitative real estate practices continued well after housing discrimination was banned, and new policies meant to encourage low-income homeownership created new methods to exploit black homeowners. By the end of the 1970s, the push to uplift black homeownership had descended into a gold mine for realtors and mortgage lenders, called by Michelle Alexander, a horror story of racial capitalism, and longlisted for the National Book Award. Race for Profit reveals how the urban core was transformed into a new frontier of cynical extraction. Race for Profit, How Banks in the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Homeownership, by Kianga Yamada-Taylor, out now from University of North Carolina Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The world as we know it wasn't inevitable, but it does often seem that way. And that normalcy is dangerous because it makes the current imbalances of power between rich countries and poor ones seem natural, which they're not. This normalization of an unequal global system has consequences. It allows migration from poor countries to rich ones to be stigmatized as criminal, and the intervention of powerful nations into weak ones to seem justified. The world is divided by nation-states, which gives people the false impression that a country's problems are solely of their own making, and obscures the fact that we live in a world system that was made by colonialism and global capitalism. Overthrowing that system and replacing it with something just is perhaps the most important unfinished business of the 20th century. As my guest, Adam Gattaccio, explains, anti-colonial leaders from across the Anglophone Black Atlantic didn't just try to cast off European rule. They fought to remake the entire hierarchical global order made by colonialism. They argued that empire was a system that pillaged the colonized world's primary goods for first world profit. Decolonization, then, 
required that system's total transformation and the construction of an egalitarian global economic order in its place. In 1957, Ghana became the fourth independent black state in the world, joining Haiti, Liberia, and Ethiopia. In 1945, there were just 51 member states in the United Nations. By 1970, there were 127. Leaders of the decolonizing world, like Ghana's Kwame Nkrumah, Trinidad's Eric Williams, Jamaica's Michael Manley, and Tanzania's Julius Nyerere followed black anti-colonial radicals like C.L.R. James, W.E.B. Du Bois, and George Padmore, who had identified slavery and the transatlantic slave trade as foundational to not just colonial subjugation, but to the making of the entire capitalist world system that had made race into a pretext for domination. Like the 19th century U.S. labor Republicans I recently discussed with Alex Gorovich, these thinkers and leaders rejected a narrow definition of slavery so as to embrace a radical vision of liberation. Already by the 1970s, however, the wealthy countries of the global north were deftly moving from fighting to maintain direct colonial control to insisting that the global south was out of control. It was the global corollary to the neoliberal assault on the domestic post-war settlement in Europe and the United States. Quickly, the leaders of a now neocolonial order declared that the anti-colonial alternative was impossible because there was, as Margaret Thatcher put it, simply no alternative. Neoliberalism was ascendant, and the multitude of black nations that had so recently won their independence had their dependence, poverty, authoritarianism, and civil violence rendered ordinary. The Global South was, like those oppressed within the Global North, cast as having failed on account of their own pathological and atavistic shortcomings. The world we live in wasn't inevitable, and neither is our future. That's the great opportunity. Given the rapid onset of climate change, it's an enormous risk, too. Before we get rolling, you're likely very aware that this podcast can only exist thanks to listeners like you supporting us at patreon.com slash the dig. But I do have something new to tell you. For those of you who contribute at least $10 a month, we now have a new book to send you as a gift. A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal by Kate Aronoff, Alyssa Battistoni, Daniel Aldana-Cohen, and Thea Riofrancos. Please contribute what you can. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Adam Gattaccio, a professor of political science at the University of Chicago, where she focuses on black political thought and post-colonial theory. She is the author of World Making After Empire, The Rise and Fall of Self-Determination, from Princeton University Press. Adam Gattaccio, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me, Dan. Conventionally, decolonization is portrayed like so. 
formally colonized people secure national self-determination by winning control of an independent nation state and casting off alien, usually European, rule. But the history that you piece together throughout the 20th century and across the Anglophone Black Atlantic is a very different one. Radical leaders and intellectuals fought for a form of decolonization that would require transforming the entire world system. To start off, explain your overall argument and how it departs from the conventional wisdom. Sure. Um, So as you've noted, the traditional or standard account of decolonization has really two pieces. One is this uh, thesis of alien rule, um, uh, which views empire primarily as a bilateral relationship between a metropolitan power and a colonized periphery. Second, it views the international politics of that bilateral relationship as one of exclusion, so that we imagine that the colony is excluded uh, from international politics and international legal relations. My book starts with the premise that for a variety of anti-colonial nationalists and anti-colonial critics throughout the um, 20th century, empire was actually a structure of of racial hierarchy, of international racial hierarchy. And for them, this meant two things. Uh, One, the colony was not excluded from international political and economic relations, but unequally integrated. It was a subordinated part of the international infrastructure. Two, they always thought that alien rule was only one form of uh, imperial power. It didn't have to be the only or the uh, the only form, even if that was the dominant form that a variety of anti-colonial nationalists were combating in the period that they were in the period of the 20th century. So this argument that unequal integration and international racial hierarchy meant for them that you couldn't just limit decolonization to securing national national independence or national self-determination. You had to undo these structures of international hierarchy, both in their in their legal, political, and economic manner. Manifestations. So the book both tries to show what this thesis of empire as unequal integration makes visible, and especially by looking into the interwar period where Ethiopia and Liberia become, for me, exemplary cases in which we can see how unequal integration operates even in the absence of alien rule. Then the rest of the book looks at three different uh, projects of what I call anti-colonial world-making, attempts to transform international political and economic relations. And these are the emergence of a right to self-determination in 1960, the creation of regional federations in in the West Indies and in in Africa um, in the late 1950s and uh, through the early 1960s, and then finally the new international economic order of the 1970s. Slavery's foundational role in colonialism, in empire, what was key to this analysis. And you quote W.E.B. Du Bois, who, who famously said that, quote, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line, which, as you put it, was an argument that imperial regimes had globalized Jim Crow. How did the the legacies of the racialized institution of chattel slavery come to shape an imperialist project that had initially been conceived of in perhaps more civilizational terms. How did that shift 
change how colonialists understood and organized colonialism in increasingly racialized terms? And also, importantly, how did anti-colonial thinkers, the anti-colonial thinkers across the Black Atlantic that you're writing about, like Eric Williams, C.L.R. James, and Du Bois, how did they develop a shared analysis of colonialism's origins, its ongoing nature. So the story of New World slavery and the transatlantic slave trade plays a, a number of roles uh, in throughout the book. First, it's the case that for these um, a- the anti-colonial characters at the center of the book, the New World slavery is the originary moment of the modern world. So this is the site and space in which something like unequal integration is first born out for them. Uh, it creates the world system uh, that they are then embedded in and combating um, into the 20th century. Uh, So, of course, that is a story. And it not only creates that world system, but there's no world system before. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, we can talk about this later as well. But the idea of anti-colonial nationalism as a project of world making comes from the perspective also that empire itself was a world making project, right, and made a world of deep forms of hierarchy and unequal integration. And it's against this backdrop of imperial world making that anti-colonial nationalists were intervening. So, but that story of slavery as a foundational moment in the world order is a story of kind of deep historical continuity. And against that backdrop, I try to highlight a story that's really focused on the late 19th and early 20th century. And here it's a real, it's a post-emancipation story about how ideas of naturalized racial difference actually emerge after the end of of New World slavery. And here I draw on the work of Thomas Holt, Sadia Hartman, and others. And what what they illuminate for us is that when projects of incorporation and extension of citizenship to formerly enslaved people failed, what develops in the aftermath of that is a new forms of racialized coercion that actually reinforce the idea of racial difference, that naturalize the, the character of racial difference. In, the, in this late 19th century moment, this account of deep racial difference would get incorporated, expanded, and extended into European imperial Af- expansion into the African continent. So here, a really important reference for me is um, Andrew Zimmerman's book, Alabama and Africa, which traces how the German empire in Togo would try to extend the model of the new Jim Crow South into their African empire um, by partnering with Booker T. Washington and the Tuskegee Institute and had an imagination of Togolese colonial subjects as ideal cotton cultivators growing out of, again, this effort to globalize the Jim Crow South. I think alongside this, uh, so Du Bois has this line where he says, the discovery of whiteness, uh, of personal whiteness, is a new is a new fact in the world. It's a late 19th and 20th century matter. And I think what he has in mind here is about a kind of newly resurgent ideas of Anglo-Saxonism, of uh, white civilization. We see this in projects around Greater Britain, this imperial f- project of imperial federation that's really focused um, on the settler states, uh, Australia, uh, South Africa, although ambivalently, and ca- Canada, New Zealand, as 
as part of this vision of Greater Britain. So in this period of the late 19th century, then you see a kind of racial, like a hardened uh, color line that's simultaneous, that's also globalized at the same time. And I think this is what Du Bois means by when he says the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the global color line. And then how did that shape more broadly these these thinkers across the Black Atlantic, like Williams, James, Du Bois, others, in terms of their their shared analysis of of colonialism's origins, how did that inform their thinking about its ongoing nature and how it might be overcome? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, one of the things the book tries to show is that in the interwar period, there's a real contestation and debate about what slavery is and what it his, what it history means for the 20th century. So the ch- first chapter shows that um, the League of Nations would, in the 1920s and 30s, uh, be preoccupied with the question of slavery in Liberia and Ethiopia in the two free and independent African countries. And throughout this period would engage in a variety of efforts at international intervention, mandation, as ways of quelling what they thought to be a humanitarian uh, a humanitarian crisis. What I argue is that we ought to read Black Atlantic writing about, about slavery and its afterlives um, and its histories written in the same period of the 1930s as alternative ways of thinking about the legacy of slavery. So the 1930s gives us uh, Du Bois's Black Reconstruction, um, C.L.R. James's uh, Black Jacobins, and then in the 40s we get Eric Williams's Capitalism and Slavery. And these are all, I want to argue, ways of staging both the centrality of slavery to the making of the modern world, their efforts to assert uh, Black self-emancipation against and in contrast to European humanitarian um, abolitionism. And so there's a real this contestation around the history of slavery and its legacies for the 20th century become a really important ground for a very important part of the anti-colonial critique leading into the 1950s and 1960s, which is to make the argument that empire itself is a form of enslavement. Um, and so I want to make clear here that what they're in, what they're saying here is not just to say that it's not only a metaphorical invocation of slavery, right? right? Um, it's an argument of both the kind of historical continuity I was talking about, and a, a real argument that colonialism and its in the new imperialism of the late 19th and early 20th century has actually reproduced the slave status of the African. Stepping back in time for a moment, you write that, quote, the first anti-systemic world-making project emerged with the founding of the International Workingsmen Association in 1864. And you also note that, quote, both the Communist Manifesto and Marxist Capital situated the rise of capitalist production and its creation of a world market in imperial expansion. My question is, how was it that this identification of the relationship between capitalism and imperialism first emerged among socialists in the metropole? And then how was it then taken up and adapted by anti-colonialists from across the Black Atlantic? 
Yeah. So I think for me, you know, I you know take seriously the central place of the Haitian Revolution as a site and space in which, for the first time, both an anti-slavery and an anti-colonial uh, politics were constituted. But what I wanted to do by highlighting a kind of Marxist origins to through this project of world making was also make clear the kind of intellectual genealogies of the figures that I'm writing about. Um, so for all of them in, you know, in very circuitous ways, it is an encounter with Marxist thinking that inspires in, or or helps to shape their various critiques of imperialism. Um, so Du Bois's encounters with Marxism in the 1930s very much influence and shape Black Reconstruction, even though he's never, you know, probably not a traditional Marxist. And um, Andrew Douglas's new book does a great job of thinking about the ways he draws on Marxism, but given his kind of commitments to thinking about race, uh, always this sort of has a kind of diagonal relationship uh, to, to Marx. And similarly, say, f uh, figures like Nkrumah, it would be an encounter with Lenin and Lenin's writings on, on imperialism that become really important for him, in addition to his encounters with Garveyism, which he, he always claimed was the most important uh, figure on his thinking. So, In fact, he joined, just as a quick aside, he joined a, a a chapter of Garvey's organization when he was at Penn in Philadelphia. Yes. Remarkable. Exactly. But go yes. ahead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think for me, partly why I center the kind of Marxist moment of thinking the globe as one is it has to do with the ways in which that that tradition in its diversity and its complexity and contradictions really shape and provides avenues and resources for the set of characters that are central to the book as we go for further. I mean, as to why it is that Marxism, Marx and, and um, socialists in the metropole are able to see it, or I think it is really about, it's really about the period of the, of, of the late 19th century. And I would say there are they're not the only people who begin to see it, but it's really in the 19th century that we get some vision of the world, of world politics as such. Hannah Arendt writing about the role of imperialism in, in uh, Origins of Totalitarianism says, this is the moment in which you get something like a world imaginary. And you have a variety of figures, um, some subaltern figures as well, who are beginning to think the world in this period. And it's because European imperial expansion has reached its height. World War I was a major turning point for the world system, obviously. And Du Bois saw it as principally caused by imperialism, writing, quote, the ownership of materials and men in the darker world is the real prize that is setting the nations of Europe at each other's throats today. But strangely enough, South African leader and League of Nations architect Jan Smuts also believed that it was a crisis of imperialism. and But he believed that it reflected poorly on some forms of imperialism or colonialism while actually proving the virtue and necessity of Britain's decentralized model, which he took as a model for the League of Nations, if I remember correctly. Conventionally, the origin of the right to self-determination as decolonization 
this beginning of the universalization of Westphalian sovereignty is associated with the League and U.S. President Woodrow Wilson's 14-point speech. But you write that when you look at what was being put in place, it becomes very clear that this moment was not so much an antecedent to decolonization, but rather an attempt at the beginning of a transition to a new form of unequally integrated world order. Well, what did Wilson and Smuts actually envision, and how does it differ with how the League has been remembered? Yeah, I think, you know, we think of the League of Nations as a kind of the originary moment of a liberal international order, right, that gets corrected and transformed, but largely it gives us the imprints of what we've come to know as liberal internationalism with Woodrow Wilson as the sort of foundational figure. So in, in that when we say that when we say that the League is the founding moment of the liberal international order, there's always this question with, well, what do you do with the deep persistences of imperialism and the ways in which that the League is actually now directly involved in imperial, at least, oversight through the mandate system. The mandate system was the mechanism by which former colonies of uh, Germany and and territories in the Middle East would be um, governed. Uh, And so oftentimes we get a story in which, well, there were these universal ideals, but they just weren't fully realized in the League of Nations, and they would be gradually realized by the time we get to the United Nations. So what I want to show is that there was it wasn't actually a problem of the non-realization of, of the universal principles like self-determination, but the ways in which they were already from the beginning articulated in such a way that empire could become compatible with self-determination. Now here too, the the story of slavery is really important because what I show is that both Woodrow Wilson and Jan Smuts already in their right pre-World War I writings about their domestic contexts, uh, South Africa for Smuts and of course the United States for Wilson, were beginning to wrestle with the legacies of emancipation. Uh, so for both of them, the idea of kind of, in, in Wilson's case, radical Republicans, um, and in Smuts's case, what he calls the revolutionary ideals coming out of 1789, They both argue that these offered a kind of unsustainable and kind of dangerous vision of uh, universal inclusion, right? And so for both of them, these projects had failed, and they had failed in in Wilson's imagination to the detriment of African Americans themselves. So... For him, and and he begins to, these reflections on the Civil War and a Reconstruction emerge alongside Wilson's uh, reflections and thinking on American imperial expansion in the Philippines and elsewhere. And so what he argues in this context is that we have to forego the idea of a universal right or principle of self-government. In fact, self-government means different things for different people, right? And Because the, the self in self-government is contextually dependent. Exactly, right. The self in self-government for him is 
is one that we have to think about the capacities of, of the so the people, their internal composition. So in the Philippines case, it's the diversity of the peoples in the Philippines island that excludes them from self-determination. And what I argue is that Wilson is sort of, he has a kind of ambivalence, right? On the one hand, he seems to gesture to a kind of older model of civilizational development, one in which eventually all the selves might be ready to have something like self-rule. At other times, though, it seems like, say, something like the internal diversity of the Philippines isn't a surmountable, isn't a surmountable problem of development. So it seems like what he's really after is a much more stable hierarchy in which certain people would never be uh, self-ruling. Smuts, I think, fully resolves this tension, right? So for him, he would say, already in the kind of, even if they don't achieve self-rule of the European variety, they may still be able to, they've still achieved a self-rule, right? And, you know, the proto-apartheid state of South Africa already embedded black self-rule for him in the native administration structures. There are forms of consent that he believes in that aren't what we would maybe today identify as meaningful democratic control over society. Right, right. He, he off, you know, um, so in designing the mandate system, for instance, he says, now, of course, the mandate people uh, you know, should be consulted, but as to whether they want their German masters back, but we all know that they won't actually want their German masters back. So we can assume that mandation is the, the right choice, right? You know, what's really interesting about Smuts also is, you know, he in he has a close relationship with liberals in, in uh, Britain, including uh, J.A. Hobson, an important um, critic of empire and one who would influence Lenin's uh, account of imperialism. But so Smuts does pick up this argument that imperialism is really the source of war. But his definition of imperialism is one that excludes the British Empire, right? So he makes this disassociation of imperialism and empire. And for him, imperialist states are the Ottoman Empire, Germany, uh, which he calls centralizing states, right? What he thinks is exemplary about Brit the British Empire and what he takes its why he takes it to be a model for the league is that he says it's an empire that allows for diversity and differentiation. So within the empire, you have Britain itself, you have the the dominions like Australia um, and South Africa, you also have the dependencies, right? And so all of these have variegated forms of rights and duties. And this is for him the kind of model of the international order and what would get instantiated in the League of Nations. How is this history all rewritten to, you know, sort of, I guess, like exclude smuts maybe from more popular memory, who was played a huge role and was the prime minister of South Africa, of all places, and to make Wilson, who was an unabashed white supremacist, to make him the father of decolonization? I mean, yes, I think this that's a good question. <laughs> it's uh, weird. <laughs> yeah, it's very weird. Um, but I think one is, you know, there I think there is a more general way of of thinking about uh, subaltern or black 
politics and black political thought in which it's always derivative, right? Um, it has its origins are always in the West and all it becomes a way of telling that story as one of diffusion. Um, so I think that has something to do with it. Two, I really think, you know, it's a, in some ways, it, I think um, it's a projection back onto this period of about American, a story of American hegemony throughout the 20th century, right? So it's in part because of the central place of the United States in the, throughout the 20th century and increasingly as the century wears on that we can go back to narrate this moment as if Wilson was the only or the primary actor in that, in that particular moment. Uh, so it's, it's more a reflection of U.S. power, I think, than of the realities in the period. I think also what happens in that context of writing Wilson as the kind of focal actor is it, dis, it displaces the centrality and significance of the Bolshevik Revolution and what how it was received by Wilson and others as a real threat and challenge uh, to the kind of world order that they were building. And I think this is why it's so important to remember the place of the Communist International's founding in the same year and the way that that conference articulated a set of critiques of both the league and uh, of the structure of imperialism it continued to enable. As you mentioned earlier, both Liberia and Ethiopia were members of the League of Nations, and that white-led government's pretext for subjecting them to a second-class status was complaints about slavery in those two countries, a precursor of sorts to what would what has today become imperialism justified as humanitarianism. And you write that the slavery charges, quote, deflected from the broader question of labor exploitation in colonized territories, while slavery itself was disconnected from colonial labor and cast as an atavistic holdover in backward societies. Du Bois said of Liberia, quote, her chief crime is to be black and poor in a rich white world and in precisely that portion of the world where color is ruthlessly exploited as a foundation for American and European wealth, part of the whole colonial slave labor system. I had no idea about this this history of the Liberian Ethiopia's time in the League. How did a colonial system rooted in the slave trade come to project slavery onto Africa as a problem almost endemic to the continent that white people would save the continent from? And what was the actually existing colonial labor system that this all obscured? One of the things that's important to remember is that anti-slavery imperialism um, is already written into the scramble for Africa. So if you look at the treaty that comes out of the Berlin Conference, there are anti-slavery clauses in there that in which all the European states commit to fighting slavery in, in, in the territories that they control. And this is a central humanity. It's the most deeply perverse it thing. Is the most, it is deeply perverse, yes. By the time we get to the crisis of slavery within Liberia and Ethiopia in the, in the, in the interwar period, a variety of things are, are 
reinforcing this this kind of argument. So one, as I say, it is a strategy of deflection. It's a way of both, you know, celebrating uh, or the idea of European success and abolishing slavery. So the argument is that everywhere that Europe actually controls African territory, slavery has in fact been abolished, right? And in these ter- it's these two territories in which there is no European rule that slavery persists. It operates with a really minimalist account of what slavery is, uh, so in which ownership and sale are the primary vectors through which we understand what slavery is. So what this obscures about the broader landscape of colonial labor, I mean, it it varies in a variety of ways, are all the ways in which the colonial state is actively involved in coercing black labor, right? I mean, very directly sometimes. So the Slavery Convention of 1926 actually has exemptions for forced labor when it is used for public works. Uh, So in those cases, uh, colonial state could could actually coerce, could have regimes of forced labor uh, to build roads and so forth. So there's those kinds of exemptions, but also the very apparatus of, uh, or the colonial regimes, uh, labor regimes enacted during this period are ones that use a variety of measures, taxation, land alienation, to compel laborers to work on plantations and mines, to work in a towards the export economy rather than in subsistence economies. Um, So it's this broad and in a variety of ways. I mean, so this, as I've said, the slavery convention has that uh, exemption. And then by the time you do get a forced labor convention in the 30s, it basically frames these structures of labor compulsion as if they were traditional forms of labor compulsion. And, And so it basically reinforces the idea that forms of coercion are are central to the ways in which African labor is uh, managed. So I think it is important to note that that there are deeply, um, you know, in both of these countries, it's not that the my argument is not that forms of slavery and coer- labor coercion did not exist, they did exist, right. But I think it's important to understand that they were largely embedded in a broader ap- colonial apparatus, right. So for instance, in this Liberia case, there's one of the important charges against Liberia is that migrant laborers are going from Liberia to other territories um, controlled by Spain in this case. When the when this comes out in the League's report, League officials say, well, this is all Liberia's fault because they're the ones benefiting from the sale. But no one questions what are the kind of broader structures that require migrant labor uh, in other colonial territories. So, like Firestone employing them. Like Firestone employing. So, so, so that's the other actor that gets completely um, that no responsibility that has no responsibility for this is Firestone Rubber Company, which is the largest private company in uh, Liberia, and and the report says again that. F- Firestone authorities never knowingly uh, employed slave labor, right? It's only when the government was in charge of uh, of recruitment that they they ended up with some slave labor, right? So almost every other actor that's embedded in the structure of extracting uh, labor is excused, sidelined, and obscured so that the real problem becomes black states and African states, right? Those are, the, those are the engines of humanitarian crisis. And then perhaps what's most revealing of 
all and most chilling in terms of thinking back on things like the Iraq, the justification of the the invasion of Iraq is that it was these charges of slavery that were used by fascist Italy as a pretext for its 1935 invasion of Ethiopia. Yes. Yeah. So I want to um, actually go back here to a thing you said earlier, which is, you know, Wilson is a rabid white supremacist. And and certainly so is. And I, I don't think that's not true. But I think it's important that for me, the point of that chapter isn't to say these two white supremacists like created a world that just reinforced their ideology. But really what I wanted to show in the League's engagements and interactions with with Ethiopia and Liberia is that how racialization is actually produced in the very interaction with the with international law, right? It's the constant iterative ideas that you know, in every moment of reform, there's always this anxiety that actually they're not going to, they're not going to come through, right? The reforms are going to fail. And it's these kind of sedimented layers in which Ethiopia and Liberia are, have all these obligations and very little rights in the system. It's, it's this constant suggestion that actually, ultimately, they're not going to be able to realize the reforms that creates a kind of a a racialization of Ethiopia and Liberia, in which basically, at the end of it, I argue that black sovereignty itself becomes an impossible vision. So by 1935, Italy writes a 60-page memorandum to the League, justifying its upcoming invasion of Ethiopia, basically on the very terms that the League had been laying out for the last, uh, you know, almost two decades, right? Uh, So what this allows them to do is two things, I think. One, it casts Ethiopia outside of the protections of international law so that, you know, forms of warfare that would otherwise be illegitimate are no longer, in their perspective, illegitimate in the case of Ethiopia. And it casts Italy itself as the kind of protector or or guarantor of international law. It's the one that's fulfilling the League's mission of abolishing slavery. The invasion of Ethiopia, you write, quote, marked a critical turning point in the politics of black anti-colonialism, after which pan-Africanism was revived as, quote, an autonomous project of world revolution in which colonized subjects, rather than the metropolitan proletariat, were the key agents of global transformation. And you write about a lot of different things happening during this period. Du Bois had initially supported the League, but turned against it as he embraced Marxism. C.L.R. James made a similar turn after embracing Trotskyism. James shifted tack after the Soviet Union joined the League of Nations and failed to forcefully fight Italian imperialism. Meanwhile, George Padmore someone we haven't talked about yet, but who played a really important role and is a major figure in your book, he had always been a communist, but then turned away turned away from the international too for the same reasons. What role did the League of Nations and the invasion of Ethiopia together have in forming what is known as the Black International? And and what was the Black International? The Italian invasion of Ethiopia has a real incredible galvanizing, uh, becomes a galvanizing force within the Black Atlantic. So there are 
protests and uh, petitions and various forms of action, strikes all over the Black world in the Caribbean, in the United States. African Americans try to volunteer to fight for Haile Selassie's army. So it's a really, I mean, a really powerful and important moment, in part because Ethiopia had been up, up until that moment, the symbol of Black independence or a symbol of Black independence, right? The Ethiopia, both as a site and a kind of imaginary of Black freedom, had played a central role for uh, Black people throughout the 19th and uh, 19th century and into the 20th century. So it's a real moment of crisis and also a real moment of politicization for various kinds of actors. Um, so in this moment, I think there is a variety of ways that um, the three figures, Du Bois, James, Padmore, all um, in some ways from from very divergent places begin to converge around a set of a set of questions, a set of ideas. Um, so Du Bois, um, you know, when the League is formed, for instance, um, and this isn't he's not unique in this, I think he thinks that a real internationalization of the mandate system, for instance, might be a good way of one introducing forms of local self-rule and two, like engaging in a project of development in which development is actually for for the mandated territories rather than against them. And so I think he remains he remains committed to this project of internationalization. And he sort of sees like educated American black people from a somewhat imperial perspective at this point. Yes, I mean, that's true. And this is a kind of reoccurring feature of his thought, but also other um, figures in, in the period, including including Marcus Garvey, someone he saw as a kind of really a bitter, bitterly opposed to. So I think it's both an encounter with Marxism, viewing the ways in which that that project of internationalization in the in the mandate system had failed, that places uh, Du Bois by the 30s into a much more critical orientation to the League. But he is, you know, a very uh, complex figure. And we don't, even into the 40s and 50s, say around trusteeship, the trusteeship model, he, along with other figures like Raymond Logan and Ralph Bunch, remain committed to the idea that some form of internationalization uh, may be a good way of thinking about development and trans political and social transformation of the colonies. We can get back to this later, but I think part of what's driving that impetus for them and for Du Bois is that is this worry that national independence w itself would not be sufficient. And of course, this is a theme throughout the book, right? So that maybe internationalization in through these institutions offers some set of resources. So James uh, similarly, you know, writes an essay as late as 1933, uh, uh, celebrating British uh, anti-slavery in the 19th century and making an argument for Britain playing a central role in fighting the last vestiges of, of slavery around the world. And it is in the, you know in the in the context of the crisis in Ethiopia and again the failure of Britain, France, and others to to stand with Ethiopia. Uh, 
he really begins to reject this argument, right? And writes in this moment an important book, World Revolution, which traces the rise and fall of the, the Communist International, where he also makes the argument for why, tries to ar- to make the, or to explain why it is that the Communist International could not play the role of supporting a more robust anti-colonial internationalism. And for him, really, the failure isn't, isn't just... Uh, the Soviet joining the league and supporting Italy or not or not boycotting Italy but but a f- earlier moment in which uh, the revolution in Germany had failed and the announcement of socialism in one country uh, so already for him by the 1920s uh, early, you know we see the kind of um, where he where we where the league would end or where the communist international would end up by the by the 30s uh, and then finally, we have George Padmore, uh, who, as you note, is a member of the Communist International. I mean, probably the most prominent black leader within the Communist International. And, you know, him and other uh, black communists in this period begin, are very much criticized uh, by the Soviet, Soviet Union leaders for their support of what they see as bourgeois nationalism um, in their kind of critique of international politics in Liberia and Ethiopia and and Haiti. And they themselves become frustrated, Padmore and others become frustrated with the inability of the of the international to support a much more robust uh, vision of anti-colonialism. So these three figures, in some ways, for me, I use them in a way to index this pivot uh, and to something like a black international. Now, the language of black internationalism already existed in the 20s and 30s. Um, Brent Hayes Edwards' book, The Practice of Diaspora, does a great job kind of walking us through the various iterations of what black internationalism meant in the 20s and 30s. But what I want these three figures and their transformations in this period to indicate is the kind of reemergence of a pan-Africanism that's very much trained on the question of independence and and concerned with the political and institutional mecha- processes mechanisms by which independence could be realized uh, on um, you know both nationally and internationally. The other thing is be- increasingly for especially someone like Padmore who wants to see it as a kind of independent site of building a. Uh, both politics and building a kind of con- conception of what a post-colonial or post-imperial world would be like. So one that's outside of the shadow of the communist international and a real, its own sort of political force in the world. The culmination of this would be the 1945 Manchester Conference, Pan-African uh, Conference, which would be the fifth one and, and which would be organized largely by George Padmore and Kwame Nkrumah. And so Padmore, the who had the, the longest track record as, as a communist, is it fair to say that he becomes the most disaffected and most nationalist of, of these figures? No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think there is, a, I think, a lot of treatments of Padmore that make this sharp bifurcation, the communist Padmore and then the nationalist or pan-Africanist Padmore. But, you know, what he argues for, 
especially in his book, uh, Pan-Africanism or Communism. And throughout his kind of engagements in, in the 1950s, he's, he becomes a really important part of Nkrumah's uh, administration, first administration, uh, when Nkrumah is elected prime minister of Ghana. He makes the case that Pan-Africanism can incorporate, should incorporate communism and the traditions of Marxist thinking, but securing independence becomes a much more central way that he's thinking about uh, what the goals and aspirations of Pan-Africanists ought to be. I mean, it is true that in this period, he does begin to modulate. So as I show, I mean, in the 30s, he had called Marcus Garvey like a similar, you know, the language of a bourgeois nationalist, one who obscured class relations, right? By the by, the time we get his writings on Pan-Africanism, he begins to claim Garvey as a kind of foundational figure in this project of Pan-Africanism. Let's turn to the, the unfolding of formal decolonization, which begins in 1957 with Kwame Nkrumah, announcing Ghana's independence and ending its time as the British colony of the Gold Coast. And he said, quote, our independence is meaningless unless it is linked up with the total liberation of the African continent. What Nkrumah wanted wasn't just independence defined in the liberal terms of non-interference, but independence in the Republican sense of non-domination. And that would require that African states become not only formally independent, but in essence, that they join together to to form a single federal state. In the Caribbean, Eric Williams, who became the first prime minister of Trinidad and Tobago after having published the classic work, Capitalism and Slavery, he pushed for federated government there in the Caribbean, and 10 West Indian states initially were, were members of a West Indian federation, in Africa, Ghana, Guinea, Mali, all included provisions in their constitutions to surrender their sovereignty to a union of African states when and if it was created. It's a fascinating moment that you're writing about and that I was not really aware of. What what did leaders like Nkrumah and Williams see as the post-colonial trap of false sovereignty? And why did they believe that federation was the political and economic solution. In in other words, what was the empire that remained after formal independence and and how did they plan to overcome it? So for both of them, you know, the real anxiety is that, okay, formal independence um, gives us something like uh, sovereign equality in the international order, but it leaves us still in relations of economic dependence, right? So small states like Ghana and Trinidad are appendages to the global economy that largely produce primary agricultural products, right? And or and so they're constantly dependent on the international market uh, to sell these goods. So they're entirely externally oriented economies, right? And the anxiety here for them, and Kwame Nkrumah's thesis of neocolonialism really captures this, is that these forms of economic dependence mean that you're constantly open to the possible encroachment of foreign uh, actors, right? And these actors might be states uh, like former imperial 
imperial powers or the new superpowers, or they may be uh, corporate forms, right? Uh, so for Nkrumah says, you know, having won formal independence, we might think that our elected representatives now serve the interests of, of the citizens of the post-colonial state. But in fact, because we've of got these, a flag, we've got a national anthem. <laughs> right, right. We have a parliament that meets in the national capital, right? But in fact, because of the externally oriented character of these economies, because of these structures of economic dependence, these newly elected leaders, these representatives of the nation are much more likely to be co-opted are much more likely to be, in fact, unwillingly serving or will or perhaps willingly also serving the interests of external actors, right? So And perhaps even more so that they're not even not just that they might be co-opted, but they're they're not actually governing. Right. Yeah. I think the more so he, you know, he says the more extreme versions of this would be you know, outright military intervention, right? And so he thinks that the Congo is one instance of this, the, the Vietnam is another instance. So for him, um, neocolonialism itself is a kind of variegated category, right, which has v- different kinds of iterations, right? And I think like, in some ways, um, what the Republican language of non-domination or arbitrary power allows us to see is, it doesn't really matter, actually, for him, whether in fact, these forms of encroachment are happening or not. It's the very, the possibility that they might happen, that the the vulnerability to these forms of encroachment and intervention that, that themselves ought to be the sources of anxiety, right? So then it's like, what, what does federation make possible for them? How might federation make possible a kind of exit from these forms of economic dependence? And the central argument for both Kwame Nkrumah and Eric Williams here is that by reorienting ourselves towards other similarly situated post-colonial states, by creating both political and economic unification among those states, we could create an economy that was more internally self-sufficient, right? We would create an economy that was directed inward to this new federated space. And by doing this, we would gradually kind of erode those relations of economic dependence. And simultaneously, we would have better political standing on the international, in international politics, uh, both because of our larger size, right? But also because of greater economic independence. So the whole structure then of the Federation, I I think is like, it's both a spatial and institutional way of thinking about how one might restructure uh, relations of international economic dependence. Somewhat surprisingly, both Nkrumah and Williams, if I remember correctly, they both pointed to the United States as an exemplar because it had used confederation to become the most powerful nation on earth. But the U.S., of course, was and is a settler colonialist nation and an imperialist one. What does their appeal to the the U.S. example reveal? Did these black leaders now governing unitary nation states imposed upon rather plural societies all while seeking to create even larger federated polities, did they miss other lessons from 1787 in terms of how federation under the U.S. Constitution served to facilitate internal colonization and imperialism? 
Yeah, this is, I mean, this was probably one of the most surprising things I also learned upon uh, visiting the archives and reading the papers of these two thinkers is the ways that the example of the United States was constantly invoked in uh, making the case for West Indian Federation and the United States of Africa. So, um, yeah, I think this is a deeply puzzling uh, example. And I think there's a variety of things going on here, right? One, I think it served a powerful rhetorical example for them, right? In in two ways, right? One, um, Krumah was especially prone to do this, is to say, if you think about decolonization as a project of you know that's now has spanned almost 200 years, if we think of, de- of, of, of the United States as having undergone a form of decolonization in 1776, and you look out in the world and you think this is the only post-colonial success story in some case, right? All these other contexts, um, Latin America, Eastern Europe, suffer the very forms of economic dependence that we we uh, we are also facing in the contemporary moment. And these are all spaces, he argues, where various attempts at unification had been unsuccessful. Right? It's a kind of here the the impetus is to try and persuade fellow nationalists that this is in fact the way to the focus, the fo- what the focus ought to be. Right? In, in a broader in- international framework, there's also a way of trying, I think, to use the United States' own its its own story of itself as a post-colonial nation, as the first post-colonial nation, to push back against U.S. imperial power at this time. And this is really important, say, in the case of Trinidad and Eric Williams, where the United States very actively has bases on um, in, in Trinidad and He's involved in the same period that he's invoking the U.S. as an example in a bitter fight with U.S. imperial power and military presence in the Caribbean. Yeah, so I think these are the kinds of ways in which uh, they're trying to to strategically deploy this example. I think that there's another powerful thing that the example does, right, which is to transform narratives about post-colonial failure in the third world that are tied to cultural deficits into stories of institutional absence, right? So the argument here is that the United States is not exemplary of because the Anglo-Saxon people or the American people have a specific capacity or endowment for freedom, right? But because they built the appropriate institutional forms, right? And so this means that there's nothing to stop the West Indies or Africa from similarly securing post-colonial freedom, right? But I think your question, you know, is really right on in some sense because it illuminates some real blind spots uh, of these two thinkers. Uh, And namely, this has to do with how their kind of fixation on centralizing and aggregating political authority, right? They see this as the primary mechanism and means by which to overcome um, this problem of economic dependence while sidelining and marginalizing very real questions of internal pluralism, right? Which are already almost immediately problems within independent African nation states, let alone a continental federation. Exactly. I mean, so, you know, one of the really striking things in the Ghanaian example is that in the lead up to Ghanaian independence, Kwame Nkrumah rejected 
uh, arguments for internal federation, largely uh, mobile, which were largely mobilized by the Ashanti Kingdom, which had various kinds of autonomy within the um, British imperial structure, right? And I think there's really important debates and tensions around around why that was, and for him. Um, the forms of autonomy that the Shanti kingdom did have were kind of non-democratic, etc. But I think there was a real failure on his part and others to imagine what a kind of what would be mechanisms to um, I don't know institutionalized to preserve various forms of internal uh, autonomy. And I think you know this this blind spot does come back to haunt him uh, because it's precisely these kinds of anxieties and these kinds of questions that give other anti-colonial nationalists and post-colonial states greatest pause when he begins to make the arguments for federation on the on the continental stage. How did Nkrumah see the secession crises in, in Congo and in Nigeria? I mean, so he's he's by the time Biafra is happening, he himself is out of power. Um, there's a coup in, in Ghana in 1966. But, um, you know, the question of Katangan secession for him becomes a real story about the international politics of decolonization. Right. So he's immediately drawn to the ways and the role of international actors in that in the secession. So both that. um Belgian uh, officers uh, helped and and sort of I wouldn't say instigated but at least supported the Katangan secession right and then it immediately becomes a proxy war uh, of the Cold War but again I think what this obscures is the real internal domestic questions about how to organize post-colonial government, right? Whether and in what forms uh, local autonomy and and self-rule might be might be institutionalized in these high, large and complex post-colonial societies. Um, but at the same time, I think he was really prescient, for instance, around how the Congo crisis becomes this way again of reintroducing or reinforcing the language of racial incapacity for self-rule, right? So the example becomes almost immediately a story about African unpreparedness for independence, right? One like narrative about Congo that gets repeated throughout this period is how few people have college degrees, right? How few people have been educated in the Congo. And this becomes somehow an implicit way of of suggesting that perhaps independence had come too soon to the Congo. Not for explicitly racial, biologically racial reasons, but for based on supposedly neutral, facially neutral criteria like educational attainment. Yes, exactly. The West Indian Federation only lasted from 1958 to 1962 after voters in a 1961 referendum in Jamaica rejected it. Soon thereafter, most African states also rejected federation in favor of a looser alliance under the Organization for African Unity. What were the, the key criticisms raised by people like Namde Azikwe in Nigeria and Norman Manley in Jamaica? And why ultimately? We've talked about a lot of problems and obstacles in the, the Federation project, but why did it ultimately fall apart? 
Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways, uh, the criticisms of Norman Manley and Namdi Azikwe are parallel, although they take a slightly different form. So overall, the thrust of the criticism is, on the one hand, it starts from a kind of agreement on the first point around the interrelationship between union and independence, right? So both Azikwe and Norman Manley accept the idea that in order for post-colonial states to secure some form of um, independence in the international order, they will have to engage in unification, regional unification. That, But what they're both anxious about is the, the structure of the, the unifications that Nkrumah and Williams are advocating. And as I, as, as I show, in some ways, in both their hands, um, federation, which is a structure of equal member states uh, is increasingly looks like internally like a state-like project, right? So both of them want highly centralized uh, uh, federal uh, governments, uh, which have powers of taxation, powers to plan a regional economy, and a lot of the powers they're interested in in, um, providing within the federal government are economic. Uh, So which on a which, you know, has a a logic to it in terms of like if you're going to remake the re- economic relationships of dependence with the global north then you need to have a diversified economy internally but one but also use taxation and redistribution to ensure that you don't have major internal inequalities but that's still a, a lot of power in it's a lot place. of power yeah and yeah so for um you know, in the context of, of Jamaica and, and or the context of the West Indies, on the one hand, uh, for the smaller islands, which who are part of the federation, in fact, like these are very appealing. So a lot of island, smaller island states do not want to have a customs union without robust forms of redistribution because they don't want to be captured markets of larger states like Trinidad and Jamaica. But for Jamaica, which is itself, you know, uh, is the largest of the of the 10 states um, that would have been part of the West Indies, it had for up until this period its own development plan, right, that required and some had had protectionist clauses, especially vis-a-vis Trinidad. And so there's a real anxiety here that the economic burdens of the federation would unduly be placed on on Jamaica. And so that's one reason. And two, there's a kind of complicated politics around representation um, and whether or not representation in the lower house should be solely on the basis of population or whether there needs to be some other calculation. And so... um, in this context, it's important to remember that Norman Manley is facing a, a kind of a very insistent opposition. Because uh, he's, actually, he's actually kind of a pro-Federation person within the Jamaican context. He is a pro-Federation person within the Jamaican context. Um, and he... Uh, but- and he's a social... Dem- and he's a... Uh, left social democrat socialist i don't know how you describe him yeah i mean he's not not i mean we'll talk to about his son in a little while so he's not a democrat a social democrat of the kind that um his son would be in the 70s but certainly he represents the left um of the nationalist split in this period so 
it's under intense domestic pressure and opposition that he asks for a series of concessions um, from uh, the with from within the Federalist negotiations. And he he's the one who suggests the referendum, but he only suggests it because he thinks he'll be able to win, actually. But of course, he he he, he loses the federal vote. I mean, I think there's the kind of historical processes by which the Federation which led ultimately to the demise of the Federation. But this question about what the appropriate balance of union and independence would be remains remains salient uh, in the African experience as well. So in that in that context, um, we're dealing there with already independent states. Uh, the worry there is actually there's a lot of openness to the possibility of economic integration. So here, surprisingly, the worry is less economic than political. And the anxiety is that this creates a new form of regional hegemony, right? So what Ezekwe is arguing for, actually, he calls it a miniature United Nations, right? Um, uh, one that has kind of contains within it protections like non, non-intervention and equal sovereignty while creating room for forms of functional integration around regional security, around uh, economic integration. Uh, so I think, you know, one of things that's really important about this federal debate for me is about this the challenge uh, that around how do you build kind of regional federations that both, you know, make possible meaningful forms of self-rule at various levels of the federation, right, while also having robust mechanisms for redistribution and economic transformation. And it, it seems to me that what this federal experiment in the Black Atlantic stages in some ways is, is the, like, difficulties and tensions around around those two questions. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles. Perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is How to Be an Anti-Capitalist in the 21st Century by Eric Olin Wright, with an afterword by Michael Burroway. Capitalism has transformed the world and increased our productivity, but at the cost of enormous human suffering. Our shared values, equality and fairness, democracy and freedom, community, and solidarity can provide both the basis for a critique of capitalism and help to guide us toward a socialist and democratic society. Eric Olin Wright has distilled decades of work into this concise and tightly argued manifesto, analyzing the varieties of anti-capitalism, assessing different strategic approaches, and laying the foundations for society dedicated to human flourishing. How to be an anti-capitalist in the 21st century is an urgent and powerful argument for socialism and an unparalleled guide to help us get there. Another world is possible. 
How to Be an Anti-Capitalist in the 21st Century by Eric Olin Wright with an afterword by Michael Burroy. Out now from Verso Books. Your book isn't about Francophone anti-colonialist thinking, but that is in some ways the counterpoint, I think, to Williams and Nkrumah's model. Leopold Senghor of Senegal and Amy Césaire of Martinique propose decolonization not as independence, but rather as the democratization of the empire, both politically and as a means to ensure that decolonized people within a democratized imperial polity would receive a fair share of the wealth that had been created on the colony's backs. How did this model of decolonization differ, both in terms of it differing pretty obviously in its solution to colonialism that it proposed, but also in terms of how it diagnosed the problem? I mean, I would say in a lot of ways, not not totally all similar, but the, the diagnosis of the problem for me is very similar. I mean, Sangor similarly talks about the problem of economic dependence, the kind of instability and fragility of being a small state in a global economy. And so there's a way in which at least that kind of diagnosis is shared. But I think the institutional conditions of possibility for these set of actors is really different. I mean, Senghor and Aimé Césaire are both operate in contexts where there are already institutionally sites of of citizenship and incorporation for francophone subjects. So for instance, in Senegal, there were these four communes from which uh, representatives were, were elected and could serve in the French assembly, right? Similarly, Martinique had that even before this period, right? So there's already internal to the French empire, I think, a real debate about the possibilities of imperial citizenship. So I think this is one place where the diagnosis changed Changes, right, so they're operating in a partly in a context in which the contours and conditions of imperial citizenship are really at the center of the questions that they're asking about what uh, transition to a post-imperial world order would look like. Um, but I do think they face real challenges around race, and for instance, at no point, you know, and this is drawing on Fred Cooper's work, at no point is equal representation really on the table for these colonies. So if there were equal representation, the colonies would have a majority of the seats in whatever imperial parliament or assembly might have been constituted, right? And so there's never, so all the proposals never have this kind of possibility of equal representation. But I think, it, you know, for Césaire and Senghor, I mean, part of their claim is that this, we have all, I mean, we've all, we also as colonial subjects have contributed to the creation of the French nation, right? And so it's a similar kind, again, similar to the languages that anti-colonial nationalists in the Anglophone world would use, but there's a claim to equality within the French within the francophone world within the french empire and that's that's where the debate really happens i mean so what makes the anglophone context really different is that one 
there is already a kind of long history of anti-colonial nationalism within the British Empire, right? Uh, so if you think about Irish nationalism in the early 20th century, late 19th and early 20th century, the example of India, and in the British context, when Imperial Federation had been discussed, it had always been at the exclusion of, of its colored subjects, right? So what I think is so interesting about the Anglophone world in some ways is the fact that these set of thinkers are trying to imagine federation um, in a context in which whether or not they like it or liked it, they had to accept national independence, right? Or those were the terms in which they had to struggle with the empire. So I think that's the real, the, that's the real difference between the two cases. Huh. Yeah. So it wasn't really that they so much dismissed the Senghor's model as an as an ideal, but just it was it was prima facie impossible for them. Yes. And I think, you know, there are earlier moments in the British imperial context where that was not the case. So if you look at early Indian National Congress writings of the late 19th century or or West African nationalists, even into the early 20th century, there are demands for equal citizenship, the rights of, of the British Empire, and so forth. And this is certainly true in the British West Indies, which, you know, is, has been in the empire for a much longer period. So equal rights within the empire were a central language of anti-colonial critique. But that moment was foreclosed much earlier in the British context than in the French one. I want to turn to the, the major project that anti-colonial nationalists took up after the failure of Federation, which was something they fought for in the United Nations called the New International Economic Order, or NIEO. It was similar in a lot of ways to the logic of, for post, of the argument for post-colonial Federation. The NIEO's architects identified neocolonialism as rooted in the Global South's dependence on selling primary goods to the former metropole. What was the NIEO? How did it come about? And how did it propose to create what you call a welfare world, a form of global class politics that went beyond a mere demand for aid or even reparations, and that instead figured the global South sale of primary goods as analogous to the working class's sale of its labor power? Yeah, great. Um, so here, you know, the story of kind of economic dependence changes a little bit. Uh, so as I said, the neocolonialism thesis really focused on the possibility that external actors might, you know, manipulate or deploy the structures of economic dependence. Here, the anxiety is that the very structural apparatus of the inter international economy persistently undermines the capacity for post-colonial government. And very front and center in the minds of Julius Nereri and Michael Manley, who are my figures in this part of the book, is the experience of declining terms of trade, right? The fact that the primary goods that they are selling on the global market are, in fact, the prices are falling dramatically for these products. So that any capacity to sort of deploy the revenues from this uh, from the sale of these primary goods to transform the domestic economies is persistently undermined uh, by the very this is a crisis in the import and 
substitution industrialization. Yes, it's a model. crisis in the import substitution uh, model. But more generally, the focus on, say, the problem of dependence shifts less. Uh, it's, it becomes less about again, actors, external actors that might deploy it, but that the very structure of, of the global economy generates arbitrary forms of power, right? It constrains the capacities of action in a variety of ways. And th these are constantly under outside of the control of, of the post-colonial states. So this is where they begin from. And, you know, and this in some ways leads to a kind of retelling or of that long history of unequal integration I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion. Now, both Michael Manley, especially Manley in, in the Caribbean context, would really emphasize that a state like Jamaica is entirely a product of its international relations, right? It's completely, it comes out of an imperial process. It's constituted by the, by that international context. And so it's a creature of the global economic order in some ways. And so, so what this also does is it forecloses for them another possible option, which is exit, right? And delinking or autarkic forms of efforts to try and secure self self rule or end independence, which um, Tanzania moves a little closer to. Which Tanzania moves a little closer to, although. You know, even in that context where Nyerere talks about self-reliance, I mean, he always argues that self-reliance has to be situated and articulated within a context of international interdependence. Um, it's it's a prim it's a primitive communism that that he's advocating, but not a um, like a archaic one. Yeah, so he does think that the village community can be a different site of of organizing political econo and economic life within the post-colony. And this is really more of a rejection of arguments like Nkrumah's, which really had prioritized industrialization, right? So the emphasis for Nyerere becomes less industrialization and an attempt to, cry, to try and create more egalitarian forms of production, uh, both and oh, and social organization. So it's it's a break with kind of model of post-colonial development that really emphasizes industrialization. But for both of them, really, this, this idea that one might sort of remove oneself, extricate oneself fully from the international economy is not one that they entertained, right? So they just, they begin from this deep belief in the um, in their embedded in the embedded character of the post-colonial world or the in their post-colonial states within the global economy and the question then becomes how might you generate out of this embeddedness how might you generate a kind of egalitarian global economy and so this is where we get the kind of analogy to the working classes, right? That the sale of primary goods and the sale of one's labor is actually analogous. Um, Nureri makes the direct analogy with workers. And then Manley often says um, that the post-colonial world are like the rural sector, the farmers of the world. Um, so I think this is what's really interesting is I think this, this analogy shifts the language around the global economy from a language of aid uh, to a kind of new politics of assertion, right? So in making this argument that the post-colonial world are the workers of the world, what Nyerere says is that 
the choice for the North Atlantic world is either violent revolution as it was before the, you know, before the kind of bargain, capital labor, labor bargain that led to the welfare state, or it can be a mediated form of collaboration and negotiation that leads us to something that we can all both agree on, right? So they want a post-war class settlement for the global South. Exactly. Yeah. And it's really interesting because, you know, we didn't talk about this, but right after World War II and the formation of the United Nations, the thing Azikwe says is there is no new deal for the black man, right? And so we might think of the NIEO as one space, not the only space, but one space in which post uh, anti-colonial nationalists try to realize a new deal for the world, right? A new deal for the black world in particular. Now, of course, the challenge around how to think about a capital labor settlement for the world is that there is no state mechanism or coercive state mechanism in, on, in the international order that could generate that kind of negotiation and that kind of agreement. Nor is it clear exactly how if the global south as a whole is the working class, what their power is to wage class war. Class like what's, war. What's, their, exactly. what's their strike? Right. So... One of the things that they do try to do is build associations around products that they produce, right? And here, really, the model is OPEC. And OPEC plays a central role as both an inspiration for the new international economic order and as a model of the possible forms of, it's not a strike, but a way of generating leverage in the international uh, economy. Um, So there's like bauxite associations and you know, all these commodity associations. And the the attempt is to kind of collaborate and, and set prices uh, um, collectively. So that's one one version of the of the ways that they try to, you know, try to n- intervene in this global economy. The second, I think, which is equally important is to begin to to make this argument. They've they've already made versions of this argument in earlier iterations that the we ought to think about the general assembly of the UN as a kind of as the primary site in which economic policy is for the world will be generated right and this is an attempt to think again about various fi- kinds of ways in which the international order might compensate for price loss uh, may pay for technology transfer etc but that because the General Assembly offers, you know, equality of all states, um, that this might be the space to generate new forms of economic regulation. This, we t- I talked about this recently with, with Nura Erekat in, in about her book about Palestine, but about how the decolonizing world, its eventual majority in the General Assembly allows anti-colonial nationalists to totally hijack the UN and take it in a very different direction than was envisioned by its founders. Yeah, I mean, this is absolutely crucial, I think. I mean, the story of the United Nations for the 30 to 40 years after its founding is really about the gradual capture of the UN forum for the politics of decolonization. And this is what happens in the context of the NIEO as well. And, you know, the both the combination of the 
oil crisis and its consequences and this new kind of assertive politics of the third world really do for a brief moment make it feel like uh, that there may be concessions from the third uh, from the north atlantic world including the united states right so which you know is short lived but i think it's important to remember that the NIEO was not just a kind of a sort of fantasy of an alternative world order, but one that had to be taken seriously, of, you know, for the for a very brief, but I think a really illuminating moment. In the 1970s, the global South's commodity trap turned into a debt trap or was became also a debt trap, which cemented this global hierarchy of domination that we've been discussing the whole interview by subjecting poor countries to the terms of international financial institutions' structural adjustment programs. And meanwhile, OPEC, which was in in many ways a flexing of Global South economic muscle and that initially inspired these other commodity cartels, their rise ultimately revealed that solidarity amongst oil-producing Global South states meant food price hikes for the rest. To what extent can the failure of the NIEO and of anti-colonial world making in general, can it be attributed to a corporate and first world reaction, an assault on radical decolonization? And to what degree was it instead, and this is maybe not, these are not mutually exclusive explanations by any means, caused by extraordinarily difficult to overcome, if not insuperable, internal contradictions imposed upon the anti-colonial project by the larger political economy of decolonization that that they existed within from the get-go? I think, you know, the explanation has to be both. Um, so there were real internal contradictions of this project. And, you know, we talked about them a little bit around the federation question, around around the insistence on unitary states and plural context, right, as one version of an internal contradiction. Um, in the context of the NIEO, this imagination of the post-colonial states as workers of the world, both kind of obscure deep differences within the third world, right, between more powerful states, resource-rich states like those in OPEC and those that would be largely importing oil, right? But also within these countries, if you imagine Tanzania and Jamaica as a, as itself the working class, it obscured internal class politics, right? Uh, like there goes the, the national bourgeoisie of each of those countries, right? Exactly, and so so there's a way in which these were really important internal contradictions of the project or tensions that were not fully resolved, that were obscured, um, and at the same time you have this. Uh, an external cont- uh, assault that that both strategically uh, deploys these internal crises, and then it it's it's really important to note that the kind of the emerging debt crisis ch- changes the terrain of struggle, right? So post colonial states find themselves in a very different place in the late nineteen seventies and into the eighties than they did at the beginning of the seventies, right? Uh, so they're in a different kind of they're not in the same negotiating and bargaining position that they that they had been, right? So they think both we have to keep in mind the shifting terrain of global politics in which these struggles are being waged. And the ways in which external actors who who were opposed or critical of the projects 
we're able to point to these internal contradictions and tensions to both call into question the kind of cohesion and coherence of the project, to uh, make visible what they would call the hypocrisy of the project. So I, you know, end the book with Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who's very briefly a U.S. representative to the U.N. And in this very illuminating essay, The United States in Opposition, he writes about the ways in which the United States should come out more forcefully against the NIEO. And it should be it should do so by calling out, you know, uh, third world authoritarianism, by insisting that this politics of equality really obscured domestic relations of inequality and hierarchy, right? And so it's a project that takes, you know, it's a critique that picks up on, I think, important tensions of the project and manages to use them as resources to combat and undermine the project altogether. Yeah, he says, quote, a vast majority of the nations of the world feel there are claims which can be made on the wealth of individual nations that are both considerable and threatening. A tyranny of the new majority that that failed to understand that their economic condition was of their own making and no one else's. And so no claim on anyone else arises in consequence. Uh, that's a mishmash of different parts of that speech that you quote. Yeah. I, I found that powerful because it it reveals how the global north and capital succeed in depoliticizing this new iteration of imperial global economics by portraying a system that prioritized particular interests, as it always had, as as a neutral and thus universal system. And it reminded me a lot of what played out domestically in the post-civil rights United States in terms of normalizing inequality. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's really interesting to think about someone like Daniel Patrick Moynihan because he plays such an important role both domestically, right? Tangle um, of pathology. Yeah, as the author of the Moynihan Report. And he writes a lot, actually, about third world and human rights, This the article on the NIEO that I've quoted. So I think it is, you know, an important place to think once more about the interrelationship between the domestic and the international. I also think, you know, one way, one important site of depoliticization is around um, the international fi financial institutions, right? So if the new international economic order, part of its argument is for a kind of politicization of questions around the economy, and an argument that the General Assembly ought to be the site and space in which international economic policy is managed, what the international, what the claim of the IMF and World Bank is, is to say that these are spaces and sites of ex-technical expertise and that we are the best positioned to provide economic policy uh, for the international order. Here, too, I think there's an important analogy with the growing role of, say, uh, central banks within domestic terrorist societies, right, uh, where there's a similar kind of depoliticization of, of economic questions, Um I'll say one other thing about this, which is, you know, one real, I think, 
shortcoming or limit of, around the new international economic order was also its preoccupation with the question of trade, uh, largely, not entirely, but largely, and, and you know, a, only a belated interest in questions of finance and monetary policy. So by 1980, you know, in the midst of the debt crisis, which has already led to structural adjustment in Jamaica, Nyerere hosts a conference and, cru- and and just as an aside, just for context, crushed Michael Manley's dreams of a social democratic yes. Jamaica and led him to believe that there is no alternative. Yes. I mean, you know, in w- one year after the structural adjustment is introduced, the kinds of like progress, economic progress and shrinking of equ- inequality that had occurred in four years had been completely wiped out in just one year. So it's a really devastating moment for Jamaica and for broadly the example of third world socialism. But what I was going to say was, you know, there's a belated conference uh, in Tanzania uh, around international monetary policy. It's a kind of amazing, you know, it's arguments for a kind of foregoing the U.S. dollar as the kind of global currency. It's making, you know, attempts to curtail the power of the International Monetary Fund. But, you know, these these attempts at kind of thinking about finance and monetary policy you know, are almost belated. It's it's almost after the defeat of, of, of the project. I mean, they've lived on in different other iterations and have come back and so forth, but they show in some ways one of the other limits of the NIEO. To what extent was the nation-state form itself, like as an institution, a driving force in locking in the system that emerged? Because this global dynamic reminds me, again, a lot of the domestic dynamic in the U.S., where where jurisdictional boundaries between municipalities, how they powerfully naturalize and normalize inequality. And the way the Pyrrhic victory of nation-state independence reminds me a lot of the empty promise of black political power in U.S. cities, where black politicians took control of local governments just as capital relocated beyond their reach. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think, again, that's a really powerful analogy about, you know, the domestic and the international and one that really illuminates what's what was at stake, say, for domestic invocations of the internal colony, or for uh, for attempts to think through, say, the concept of self-determination. I mean, I do think one of my points, though, is we shouldn't think of the figures who occupied the nation state form as, you know, naive about the limitations of the nation state, right? I think what we learn from this set of anti-colonial nationalists is that they were deeply attuned to the kind of at least some of the limits uh, and traps of the nation state. And they tried over the period of 30 years to try to overcome them and circumvent them, right? So I think what's important about that also is we we tend to tell a story about the nation state's limits that really begins in the 1970s, right? We say this is the moment in which we learned really, beginning with the with the age of neoliberal globalization, where we learned really about the limits of the nation state form. But I think 
for the post-colonial world that this those set of limits were already visible even before they had nation states right and so i think there's something really important about recovering how figures sought to were forced to um were, were embedded in the system of of nation states but were very prescient about its limits and sought to transform it and i think i say it's important to recover that because i think in our own moment, it seems to me, it's true we might say that a, a world system of nation states, uh, it obscures the various forms of, of international forces acting on us, right? And it acts as a set of traps, it re naturalizes boundaries. But it seems to me we also have to, we, we live in these structures, right? And so our approach can't be a one that just wishes them away, um, but tries to work in, through, and beyond them uh, to transform the set of relations. You write, quote, With the more ambitious world-making projects waning on the international stage, nationalists deployed the more minimalist version of internationalism in which the international order merely secured the rights of the nation-state to shield repressive practices from international scrutiny. This quote not only prioritized the precious nature of external sovereignty over its internal instability, but also equated internal dissent with external intervention, foreclosing the possibility of contesting the terms of postcolonial statehood. Then the sort of flip side of this development, however, was a new framework to legitimate the violation of that same sovereignty, including an international human rights order that frames rights as inhering principally in the individual and frames states as the principal violator of those rights, a pretext for intervention into the nation state similar to that of the League of Nations but now unilateral rather than multilateral and using new categories like failed and rogue states and with collective rights and subjects nowhere to be seen. How did this all emerge at the same time, this simultaneous rise of a minimalist but absolute defense of post-colonial nation-state sovereignty alongside new global norms that qualified that same sovereignty and so subjected those nation states to intervention. One of the things the book argues is that there was always these two sides of anti-colonial internationalism, right? One, this more minimalist kind of defense of the states, of the sovereign state, and then these more kind of ambitious projects that either, you know, wanted to delegate sovereignty to a regional um, authority or wanted, you know, robust mechanisms of international economic regulation that would ensure equality, right? Um, but so one of the places early that you see this emergence of a kind of defense of the state system is in, in Nkrumah's writings around the Congo, right? And around the resolutions that are passed in the United Nations around the Congo crisis in the context in which um, the the kind of Congo crisis has been transformed into a, a Cold War proxy war. So it's always there in some sense, but I think of these two developments as dialectical, right? 
as this anxiety, especially during the Cold War, of intervention and uh, manipulation, are, are those anxieties are heightened, and as there's a series of crises uh, internal to, or critiques and crises within this domestic context, securing and safeguarding inter- uh, these forms of external sovereignty become increasingly more important, right? But the second development that you talk about, which is this emergence of a kind of language of humanitarian intervention, is in some ways, we can trace the roots of it to the 1970s, where a kind of there's an emergence of what Sam Moyne has called a new language of human rights that's largely about human rights as individual rights that are above and beyond the state. That's already there in the 70s, but it's really only in the post-Cold War context that you see humanitarian intervention actually being uh, articulated and practiced in a in a real way. Because the fight against the Soviet Union is both a pretext for a lot of intervention, but also a check on it as well. Yes, exactly. And I mean, I think one of the things uh, I point to near the end of the book is the ways that really beginning in the 70s, but certainly by the 1990s, the United States has emerged increasingly untethered from the international system, right? It created the UN system, right? But increasingly wants undermines international institutions like the UN and seeks to deploy other other resources, say NATO or unilateralism in the 1990s and, of course, into the 2000s. And this is really the moment you see a birth of kind of humanitarian intervention. So for me, there's it's a sort of and then, of course, in that period of increasing humanitarian intervention, it appears as if the only resource and it's it's it's, you know, a limited one at best is a kind of we're trapped in the kind of insistence on state sovereignty as these increasingly new forms of intervention and new forms of unequal membership into the in the international order are introduced. Which goes a little bit of a way to explaining why both obviously imperialism is so unsettling, but also certain attacks on it can seem weird, too. <laughs> Yes, like one one doesn't want to be in a position of, uh, you know, a defense, the defensive posture around state sovereignty can also be dangerous uh, insofar as it uh, does obscure real forms of domination in, in, in domestic societies. And then the and then the, the economic corollary to, to this whole shift of from collective to to the individual rights bearing subject is global economic justice being conceived of in in individual terms, which you write, quote, shifted attention to absolute poverty over relative inequality, and which we see today in just kind of like the mainstream development politics, the the celebration of micro-lending and land titling, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a really important development, and one you already begin to see in the 1970s. Uh, it's fully articulated in the 80s and 90s, but one that's much more concerned with a basic needs approach or on minimal standards of sufficiency over and above claims of equality. 
now, I mean, as Sam Moyne puts it in his book, Human Rights in an Unequal World, I mean, what's interesting and important about this period is, of course, in some ways, yes, we have made actually important strides around the question of absolute poverty, but it's in a context, but in the same context, relative inequality has been magnified astronomically. So it's also this, you know, a certain kind of minimalism that makes it impossible to think about, say, something like, what would a project of global equality look like in the contemporary moment? And so I think partly thinking back to these projects of anti-colonial world making, and especially the new international economic order, is also to remind us of the scale and ambition of the kinds of political projects anti-colonial nationalists imagined. Your book isn't about climate change, obviously, but I found myself thinking about it constantly or reading it because climate change, of course, has been overwhelmingly caused by rich countries' emissions to create profits for fossil fuel companies, yet its impacts are going to be most and are being most acutely felt by poor people in poor former colonial, formerly colonial countries the world over. In the effort to deal with climate change by eliminating fossil fuels has to include internationalist redistribution at its core or the between nation inequality that fossil fuel development has already created will be locked in place. So my my last question is looking back, what do you think we might do going forward? How might what you call post-colonial cosmopolitanism be revived today? Because it seems like an incredibly important question that we don't have a lot of time to figure out. You know, I think in some ways, the book is really concerned with a set of figures who lived, you know, who, who, whose projects were em- emerged and thought between the 1940s and 70s, the 30 glorious years, the age of economic growth. And so in some ways, they too are embedded in a moment that's deeply tethered to the idea of growth as a kind of ongoing project. And it's one that, of course, we don't share as a horizon of possibility any longer. But I think one of the real lessons of this, their way of thinking about the world is to think exactly as you said about how it is that we think about unequal the unequal integration of our world as the central premise and grounds from which we think an international and internationalist politics you know how how they say in their account their store the story of of the ways in which the global south made the global north was the basis for them to claim a set of inclusion and incorporation in the growth, in the politics of economic growth, in the trajectory of economic growth in that period. And for us, I think that starting from that same premise can be the basis to make a different set of demands about who's going to bear the greatest burdens actually for transforming the, the situation uh, or the context in which we find ourselves. Earlier this year, when... Um, uh, Cyclone Ide hits southeastern Africa, in particular Mozambique. The hardest hit areas were just miles from a, an offshore oil exploration site, I think, that ExxonMobil ran. And in that context, after the devastation of the cyclone, Exxon made a kind of 
donation towards supporting the recovery efforts. And activists on the ground were calling on Exxon to pay their climate debts. And so I, I think this language of debt and is really has been deployed both in that context and by demands for reparations in the Caribbean to transform the question of who's indebted to who. It may be that the post-colonial world is indebted, owns debt, but by calling into question or illuminating the ways that, say, Exxon is actually indebted to this to Mozambique or in other places where it has drilled oil is a way of circumventing that language of debt and calling on the burdens of climate change to be borne by those who have benefited the most. I mean, there's another, you know, way I think we might think about this. And this is the work of Tendai Achuemi, who's a, a law professor at UCLA, who's made this argument that if we also think of the of the kind of world as imperially integrated, we ought to think about the politics of migration and the ways in which migrants from the po- formerly colonized world move and travel into Europe or move from Central America to the United States as itself a process of decolonization, as an extension of the project of creating an egalitarian world order. And another way of calling into question what it is that the global north actually owes the global south. Now, I think you ask a harder question, which is like, what is the kind of... um how to do it. <laughs> you know, yeah, how to do it. And also just what would be the forms of solidarity, uh, transnational and global solidarity that could reinforce and support these forms of politics, right? And I don't have a, you know, straightforward answer there. But I do think just one more lesson, I think this is just for leftists in the United States to think about or progressive people in the United States to think about is this question of what and how we respond to the international crisis and international context of our condition is not just a matter of altruism. And it's not also a matter of solidarity that's like, we are also going to help our brethren out there. But it really, I think, is absolutely fundamental to whether or not we're able to transform the, the our domestic conditions as well. Um, so I'll just give one more example here, which is just to say, if one part of the climate, you know, the, transforming the tr- conditions of climate change has to be tackling the question of military power in the United States. I mean, the U.S. military is a huge consumer of fossil fuels, right? And so, I mean, here's a really important place, I think, where it's a question and issue that has both domestic and international reverberation, you know, curtailing and undermining U.S. power, military power, calling for, you know, a radical reduction of U.S. military power, has reverberations around climate change and about U.S. capacity to fuel international violence and conflict. It also has reverberations in the domestic context where deeper and deeper ties between uh, military forces and police affect, you know, marginalized and racialized U.S. citizens. So so I think it's really about both a kind of a, an orientation, right? How do we how, how when we approach a set of questions, how when we mobilize around a set of issues, might we bring this kind of orientation that thinks the domestic and international together simultaneously and always? And 
I think that creates lots of opportunities to think about the forms of coalition building that we might generate both domestically and transnationally. Well, Adam Gadacho, thank you so much. Thanks, Dan. Adam Gatacho is a professor of political science at the University of Chicago and the author of World Making After Empire, The Rise and Fall of Self-Determination. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in mines of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins, signaled the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com and follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please consider leaving us a nice review. Those reviews ostensibly help put us in touch with new listeners. But what really, truly does that is you telling other people how much you like the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation going strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 